Section 13 of Constructive Conscious Control of the Individual by F. Matthias Alexander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 2, Chapter 6 Unduly Excited Fear Reflexes, Uncontrolled Emotions, and Fixed Prejudices. There can be little doubt that the process of reasoning tends to develop more quickly and to reach a higher standard in a person whose attitude towards life might be described as calm and collected. In such a person, the psychophysical processes called habits are governed by moderation, and his inhibitory processes are adequately developed in all spheres of activity. Their use is not limited to those comparatively few spheres where it was considered necessary to establish taboos during the early and later periods of man's struggle with the problems which arose in the various stages of the civilizing process. In these spheres, there has been a harmful and exaggerated development of the inhibitory processes, often causing virtues to become almost vices, whilst in other spheres there has been a correspondingly harmful lack of the development of inhibition, particularly in those spheres connected with the use of the psychophysical mechanisms in practical activity. This represents an unbalanced use of this wonderful process of inhibition and tends to produce, as a general result, a state of unbalanced psychophysical functioning throughout the whole organism and to establish what we shall refer to as the unduly excited reflex process. This unbalanced psychophysical condition of the civilized human creature is apparent in most spheres of activity and the child of today is more predisposed to the factors which make for this condition than his parents or their ancestors. This child, therefore, starts his school career with a comparatively poor equipment on the inhibitory side. Now, volition and inhibition are invaluable birthrights of the human creature and should be developed equally, as it were, hand in hand. But from the first moment of a child's school life right on to adolescence, the training he receives tends to interfere with his balanced development, and so is another factor in the cultivation of those psychophysical defects and abnormalities which make for the unbalanced condition to which we have already referred. Footnote. The fact of the great number of don'ts to which some children are subjected and the implicit obedience expected of them at school and at home does not affect my contention that the children of today manifest a serious lack on the inhibitory side in all activities involving the use of the psychophysical organism. And a footnote. Unduly excited fear reflexes, uncontrolled emotions, prejudices and fixed habits are retarding factors in all human development. They need our serious attention, for they are linked up with all psychophysical processes employed in growth and development on the subconscious plane. Hence, by the time adolescence is reached, these retarding factors have become present in a more or less degree, and the processes thus established in psychophysical use will make for the continued development of such retarding factors. This is particularly the case when a person endeavors to learn something calling for new experiences. It is only necessary to watch adult pupils in their lessons to realize that in the great majority of cases, 
more or less uncontrolled emotions are a striking feature in their endeavors to carry out new instructions correctly. Watch the fixed expression of these pupils, for instance, their jerky, uncontrolled movements and their tendency to hold the breath by assuming a harmful posture and exerting an exaggerated strain such as they would employ in performing strenuous physical acts. In many cases there will be a twitching of the muscles of the mouth and cheeks or of the fingers. In each case the stimulus to these misdirected activities is the pupil's idea or conception that he must try to do correctly whatever the teacher requests. And, as we have seen, on the subconscious plane the teacher insists upon this. The teacher of re-education on a conscious plane does not make this demand of his pupils, for he knows by experience and has to face the fact that in cases where there is an imperfect functioning of the organism, an individual cannot always do as he is told correctly. He may want to do it, he may try and try again to do it, but as long as the psychomechanics by which he tries to carry out his teacher's directions are not working satisfactorily, every attempt he makes to carry out his teacher's directions correctly, trying to be right, is bound to end in comparative failure. For in making these attempts, as we point out elsewhere, the pupil has only his own judgment to depend on as to what is correct, and since his judgment is based on incorrect direction and delusive sensory appreciation, he is held within the vicious circle of his old habits as long as he tries to carry out the directions correctly. Paradoxical as it may seem, the pupil's only chance of success lies not in trying to be right, but, on the contrary, in wanting to be wrong, wrong that is according to any standard of his own. In this connection, it is most important to remember that every unsuccessful try not only reinforces the pupil's old wrong psychophysical habits associated with his conception of a particular act, but involves at the same time new emotional experiences of discouragement, worry, fear and anxiety, so that the wrong experiences and the unduly excited reflex process involved in these experiences becomes one in the pupil's recognition. They make the meat they feed on, and the more conscientious the teacher and the pupil are on this plan, the worse the situation becomes for both. It is for this reason that the teacher on a conscious plane does not expect a pupil, as I have pointed out, to perform correctly a new act calling for new experiences, but instead, by means of manipulation, gives to the pupil the new experiences, repeating them until they become established. We have seen, indeed, in chapter 3, that he asks the pupil not to make any attempt to gain the end at all, but instead to learn gradually to remember the guiding orders or directions which are the forerunners of the means whereby the end may one day be gained. This may not be today, tomorrow or the next day, but it will be, and then a pupil will be able to repeat the act with mathematical precision at all times and under all circumstances, for such retarding factors as unduly excited fear reflexes, uncontrolled emotions and fixed prejudices will not have been developed in the process just outlined. 
Indeed, a process which does not involve a pupil's being asked to perform any act until his teacher has prepared the way by raising the standard of the pupil's sensory appreciation and psychophysical coordination to that satisfactory state which will enable him to perform the act, as we say, easily, will be a process which ensures that the pupil's experiences will be, with rare exceptions, satisfactory experiences, which make for confidence and are not associated with those emotional disturbances which tend towards the minimum instead of the maximum functioning. The relation of all this to the very important question of the ability to keep one's head at critical moments is clear, and it may be interesting to apply the points we have raised in the foregoing to such activities as playing games or to other performances in which skill and so-called presence of mind are required. We constantly hear in this connection remarks like the following. I didn't do so badly at it at first, but the longer I play, the worse I play. One writer in the public press remarks that it is a curious feature of golf that the more one knows about it, the more difficult it seems to become. And another writes that a well-known professional had confessed that golf had become almost too much for him. All this applies equally, of course, to other games. But I have chosen golf for my illustration because it happens that writers on golf, commenting on some of the incidents that have occurred at matches during the past two years or so, have unwittingly emphasized the existence of the problem which underlies these admissions and with which I am dealing in the present book. For instance, they have commented on the failure of certain experts to perform some simple stroke when under an unusual stress, and at a moment when success depends on their not throwing a chance away. They have pointed to the tendency of some players to become confused and to hurry their strokes through anxiety to get it over. Truly heartbreaking is the description of one such incident, words that will be echoed by many who have had similar discouraging experiences in other matters besides golf. We are told that this is all a matter of nerves and so forth. It is undoubtedly a case of the undue excitement of fear reflexes on the player's part, fear, for instance, that he may miss a shot which he knows he is not in the habit of missing and ought not to miss. As a pupil once said to me at a first interview, I'm always coming up against things that I know I can do, and yet, when it comes to the point, I can't do them. The fact is that in all our processes of learning things, the fear reflexes are unduly and harmfully excited by the teaching methods employed, according to which demands are made upon us that we are not able to fulfill. So for a time we get bad results, with the undue and harmful development of emotional reflex processes which, as we have seen, inevitably accompanies these unsuccessful attempts. We continue to practice on wrong lines, so that our successful experiences are few, and our unsuccessful experiences many. We attempt on a subconscious basis to develop a particular stroke, and in any failure to make the stroke satisfactorily, the imperfect use of the psychophysical mechanisms plays more than its fair share. It is experiences like this which cause disappointment and undue excitement of fear reflexes and serious emotional disturbances, 
and nothing whatever is done at this later stage of the process to nullify these effects of the psychophysical experiences cultivated during the earlier stages. These emotional disturbances were part and parcel of an unbalanced psychophysical condition, of a state of anxiety and confusion, and there can be little doubt that any circumstance that is more or less unusual is likely to bring about a recurrence of the same disturbed psychophysical condition as was experienced by the subject during his early efforts to make the stroke. But beyond this we must remember that it is only the small minority of experts in any line who really know how they get their results and effects, in the case of golf, for instance, how they perform their most successful strokes. Footnote. The same thing applies to the expert singer who does not know how he sings any more than the political and social leaders of our time know how much more they are influenced in their decisions and actions by their prejudices and emotional gusts than by their reasoning processes. And a footnote. Therefore, directly anything puts them off their game, they experience considerable difficulty, at any rate, in getting on to it again. It is only by having a clear conception of what is required for the successful performance of a certain stroke or other act, combined with the knowledge of the psychophysical means whereby those requirements can be met, that there is any reasonable possibility of their attaining sureness and confidence during performance. I would here refer my readers to my earlier volume, where this point was dealt with at some length in connection with golf, and I have the less hesitation in doing so, as what I have written there has since had the endorsement of such a distinguished golfer as Mr. John Duncan Dunn, a matter naturally of great gratification to me. I there attempted to make clear that the success of any particular process in golf, such as for instance following through, must depend primarily on the general condition of psychophysical development and control present, because a player whose sensory appreciation is in any way at fault cannot satisfactorily carry out directions given to him. For the indispensable preliminary to success is a reliable sensory appreciation which will guide the particular player in his efforts to reach and maintain during the stroke, an adequate standard of coordination in the general use of his mechanism. This satisfactory general use is essential to satisfactory specific use. By chance or good luck, a man may make a good stroke without having attained to a good standard in the general use of himself, but he can never be reasonably certain of repeating it, and the experiences associated with this state of uncertainty do not make for the growth of confidence, but rather for the developments of undue fear reflexes and serious emotional disturbances. Footnote. The following, quoted from the Times, October 29, 1921, is a delightful little parable showing the fallacy of expecting pupils to be able to put right some defect unless the means whereby they can correct it is first given into their hands. Quote, Wandering a little farther along the course, I came across two elderly gentlemen playing a short hole. The first hit a good shot onto the green, the second did not. Would any sane man, he exclaimed, believe that such things could be? I could put you right in a minute, 
said complacent number one. I wish you would, replied humble number two. Well, I will, said number one. And I waited breathless, thinking that at last I was going to find out the secret of all hitting. You don't follow through. It was yet one more disappointment in a bitterly disappointed life, for I knew that I and most other people in the world very often don't follow through, and that knowledge does not make me play any better. How oh, number one, number one, I murmured. What the devil is the good of telling me that? You must tell me what I do with my confounded arms and legs on the way up, that they behave so ill on the way down. You are not such a good coach as I thought you, number one. And I went away sorrowful. End of quote. End of footnote. We must realize that if an individual is to reach that satisfactory stage of progress where he can be reasonably certain of success in achieving his ends, those principles must be observed which imply reliance in all activities upon the means whereby the end may be gained, irrespective of whether during the progress of the activities concerned the performance is correct or incorrect. The application of these principles in any sphere of learning means that the teacher during lessons must be able to supply the pupil's needs in a matter of reliable sensory appreciation, by giving him from day to day the necessary experiences until they become established. No technique which does not meet the demands herein indicated will prove satisfactory as a means of re-educating a pupil on a general basis to a reliable plane of conscious activity. When this plane is reached, the individual comes to rely upon his means whereby, and does not become disturbed by wondering whether the activities concerned will be right or wrong. Why should he, seeing that the confidence with which he proceeds with his task is a confidence born of experiences the majority of which are successful experiences unassociated with overexcited fear reflexes? This confidence is further reinforced by his confidence in the reliability of his sensory appreciation, which ensures that any interference with the coordinated use of himself will come to his consciousness as soon as it occurs, awareness. This consciousness is really a state of acute awareness which has been developed in him during the processes of re-education and coordination on a general basis and the confidence associated with it is not likely to desert him in a moment of crisis. It is true that he may be put off the right track, but he knows that it will only be momentarily, and he is certain that his awareness, associated as it is with reliable sensory appreciation, will not fail him in such situations or crises, but will prove his protector and reliable guide for this state of awareness means that he will be able, at such moments, to remember, reason, and judge, that is, to size up the situation, as we say, and the resultant judgment, based as it is upon experiences associated with reliable sensory appreciation and unassociated with unduly excited fear reflexes, will be in its turn a sound and reliable judgment. This matter of unduly excited fear reflexes has been referred to in the chapter on education, and here I wish to discuss processes used in tests made on children in this connection. 
In some schools, special mechanical tests are made in order to discover the potentialities and qualities of the children and to grade them accordingly. The young and undeveloped organism of the child's mental apparatus is, as it were, put upon the rack, and his intellectual status and probably his educational fate depends upon the results of these tests, which are supposed to be a reliable guide not only as to the line of procedure to be taken in regard to the details of his school education, but also as to the particular career for which he will be best adapted when the state of adolescence is reached. A teacher recently told me of an interesting personal experience in this connection. She visited a modern school where a psychologist was engaged in testing the children for such qualities as accuracy, muscular control, observation, etc. She was taken into a small room set apart for the purpose of such tests. A boy of seven was waiting there to be tested for quote-unquote control. He had shown various symptoms which were described as nervous, and the test to be taken was to enable the school authorities to prescribe a curriculum to meet his special needs. The test was made as follows. An apparatus electrically worked was placed in front of the child. It consisted of a metal tray in which were sunk two rows of shallow circular holes decreasing gradually in size from that of a shilling to a very small size. The boy was told to touch the center of each hole with a small metal rod tapering to a point like a pencil. If he made a mistake and touched the side of a hole, in his effort to get the center, an electric flash would be the result. The child, so I was told, was already in a state of nervous dread, and when he received the instruction, now you must try and touch the center of each hole, and do not touch the side of any hole or else you will make a flash, he at once became so excited through the fear of making a mistake that his hand shook and he stiffened and tensed his whole body unduly in making the first try. He was therefore unable to control his hand to find the center of the first hole, touch the side and produced a flash. Still more frightened by this, still more anxious not to do the wrong thing again, he proceeded from hole to hole, making flash after flash, realizing that every mistake he made was being noted by the tester against him as he thought, so that by the time he had reached the last hole, his condition was one of undue excitement. It is obvious that a test taking with such emotional conditions present was not a reliable test of his control or a trustworthy guide to anyone wishing to estimate his potentialities and general qualities. Indeed, I am prepared to prove by demonstration that 9 out of 10 of the children now being submitted to tests are imperfectly coordinated and that a great number are beset with very serious psychophysical defects. Now, in this matter of tests, because the human organism is an animate machine, I wish to carry the reader on to a consideration of an inanimate machine, say a motor car. Would any sane person attempt to test a motor car on the road if he were certain that a number of the important parts of the mechanism were imperfectly adjusted? 
and if he happened to be foolish enough to do this with his badly adjusted machine, could he expect to judge of the standard of functioning of that particular make of car by the result of these tests? These are unreasonable propositions such as no mechanic would entertain for a moment. But, unfortunately, in the field of education, the same idea in regard to mechanics does not prevail. The end-gaining principle holds sway, and in the sphere of psychophysical activity under consideration, the process of reasoning takes little part. If it had done so, the psychological expert in tests would have demanded that a child should be in a satisfactory state of coordination and adjustment before he would consent to make tests as to the child's potentialities. He would then be dealing with a psychophysical organism functioning satisfactorily, and tests made with these conditions present could probably be of some assistance to those concerned with the child's growth and development and future career. Where the imperfectly coordinated child is concerned, its first need is to be readjusted and coordinated on a plane of conscious control, until the standard of functioning in psychophysical use of the organism is adequate. The organism will then function as near to the maximum as is possible, and the potentialities for improved functioning will continue as the child gradually develops to that standard of conscious guidance and control in psychophysical use, which makes for the conditions essential to the fullest development of latent potentialities. We have all heard instances advanced of wonderful feats being performed by people in an emotional state of quote-unquote faith cures being affected when the subjects of these cures are in that uncontrolled and harmful psychophysical state which is akin to conditions associated with drunkenness and which at times approximates to mild insanity. For instance, the writer was acquainted with a man who never accomplished anything worth mentioning in his particular sphere of life until he was half-crazed with alcohol. He also knows of a carriage painter who is unable to put in the straight line satisfactorily unless he is well under the influence of alcohol. We can all point to instances of men and women who have performed remarkable acts whilst in an uncontrolled emotional state in which they have been a danger to themselves and to those around them. Men are sent into battle in a half-drunken condition in order that their controls may be temporarily released, and for centuries bands of musicians have been employed in warfare to induce this emotional condition of lowered control. Muddling through by instinct is unintelligent enough, but deliberately to induce in human beings by artificial means such as the processes involved in methods of faith cure, autosuggestion, religious revivalism, etc., a condition of lowered control, where intelligence and reasoning are superseded by uncontrolled emotions, is a procedure which may be described as an insult to even a very lowly evolved intelligence. All concerned reach the borderland of insanity through the use of such means for the accomplishment of their aims, and the psychophysical experiences involved have only to be repeated sufficiently to bring madness in their train. In all these instances the end-gaining principle is in operation, 
and the people subjected to these unnatural and harmful experiences are more or less influenced by them in afterlife, for the uncontrolled forces which run riots on these occasions are rarely mastered again, and recur more or less in other spheres of activity, frequently developing into dangerous manifestations, culminating often in tragedy. Small wonder that after the experience of 1914-1918 we are confronted with dangerous uncontrolled forces in human activity which before the war were manifested only by a small minority. When the individual is dominated by his uncontrolled emotions, even a weak stimulus will often cause him to indulge in dangerous activities, leading him temporarily to experiences which are well within the psychophysical state which we call insanity. The repetition of such experiences is the beginning of the formation of what we call a habit, in this case the habit of unbalanced psychophysical activity. And unfortunately, as we all know, it does not take long to establish a bad habit. Footnote. Worry is one of these bad habits which, once established, are very hard to break. A curious feature of this habit is that in certain cases, though you may remove the cause for worry, and the subject may admit that the cause has been removed, the removal of the cause does not remove the mental state which the subject declared was the cause of the worry. The fact is, the person has developed the worry habit, a state in which he manufactures the stimulus to worry. End of footnote. So-called mental tricks are more common than purely physical tricks, and we are well aware that when indulged in, they soon become a habit, and that the indulgence of one bad habit tends to the development of others, with a rapid increase in the degree of indulgence. In this matter of bad habits, and the lack of control which they connote, we must recognize the fact that the human creature cannot be expected to exercise control in the different spheres of his activity in civilization, unless he is in possession of reliable sensory appreciation and of a satisfactory use of the psychophysical mechanisms involved. People who are lacking in control will be found to be imperfectly coordinated and their sensory appreciation to be unreliable, and no form of discipline or other outside influence can secure that satisfactory standard of psychophysical functioning without which the individual cannot command a satisfactory standard of control within or without the organism. Where the human being manifests this lack of control, he needs to be re-educated on a general basis so that reliable sensory appreciation may be restored together with a satisfactory employment of the psychophysical mechanisms. The processes of this form of re-education demand that the means whereby to any end must be reasoned out, not on a specific but on a general basis, and with the continued use of these processes of reasoning, uncontrolled impulses and emotional gusts will gradually cease to dominate and will ultimately be dominated. The organism will not then be called upon to satisfy those unhealthy cravings which we find associated with unreliable and delusive sensory appreciation, debauched kinesthesia. The fact is, the principle of reasoning out on a general basis, the means whereby we shall commend our ends, simply implies a common-sense procedure. Common sense is a very familiar phrase, and we all have our particular conception of what it means. 
We know many people who will point out that individual opinion can differ as much in regard to the meaning of common sense as in regard to religious, political, social and educational matters. We will therefore put our point of view in regard to common sense by giving an instance in which we consider the human creature does not evince common sense. The man who is convinced that he is suffering from digestive and liver disorders and knows that this has been caused by his indulgence in alcohol or by excessive eating and still continues to indulge in either of these habits despite the depression and suffering which result and despite the assurance of his medical advisor that moderation will put him on the road to good health once more cannot be said to act in accordance with common sense. My reader may say that the man cannot refrain from taking alcohol or from overeating, and it may be advantageous to consider this man's inability to act in accordance with the dictates of common sense. In the first place, it is clear that he had recognized the fact that he was ill. The fact that he had consulted his medical advisor is proof that the stimulus or stimuli in this connection had reached his consciousness and no doubt he was quite ready to take the medicine or carry out the form of treatment prescribed, provided that these did not interfere with his habits of indulging in alcohol or in overeating. But of course, the desired return to health could not be secured by such an unreasoning procedure. The habit is always the impeding factor, and in this case the medicine and the treatment were of little importance unless the bad habit of overindulgence in alcohol or of excessive feeding could be eradicated. This leads us to the consideration of the psychophysical activities within the organism of which habit, so-called, is a manifestation. In the case of a person who is blessed with a satisfactory standard of psychophysical coordination, moderation will be the rule and excess the exception to that rule. With a person who is badly coordinated, the reverse will be the case, in a more or less degree, in one or more spheres, for the habit of excess will gradually become more firmly established, with too frequent repetition of the indulgence of the debauched sensory desires connected, in the case given, with eating and drinking, thus making indulgence the rule and not the exception. In the continuance of our consideration, we will trace the cultivation of the alcohol habit where the subject of our illustration is concerned. That we speak of the cultivation of this habit presupposes a time in the history of the man when he did not make a habit of taking alcohol in such quantities as would cause liver and other internal disorders. The facts concerned with his reasons, however, for beginning to take alcohol to excess at some particular time in his life would not help us very much, even if we could be certain of them. The important point for us to remember is that his sensory appreciation was unreliable and perverted, and his psychophysical organism in an unsatisfactory state of coordination so that he gradually became dominated by that sensory debauchery which results from excessive alcoholic and other indulgence, and by the depressing and enervating conditions which follow. These latter conditions are among the most potent of the stimuli which make for the repetition of the excesses at more and more frequent intervals, this repetition counteracting again for a time the depressing and enervating conditions brought about by the renewed indulgence. 
Unfortunately, the process is one that makes the meat it feeds on, so that the degree of sensory debauchery increases rapidly until the functioning of the organism becomes utterly demoralized. It is almost certain that in the early stages of his alcoholic experiences, the subject was unaware of his lack of satisfactory coordination and sensory appreciation. As a matter of fact, it is unlikely that he had ever given consideration to his psychophysical condition. He had simply taken alcohol occasionally, as he had taken many other things in the way of food and drink, never for a moment meaning that it should become a habit or even suspecting that he lacked the ability either to continue taking it only occasionally or to discontinue taking it altogether if he so wished. This reveals the degree to which egotism may be subconsciously developed in the human creature until it becomes a potent factor in influencing the processes associated with subconscious and unreasoned conclusions such as the one arrived at by the subject of our illustration in regard to his ability to continue to drink occasionally or to discontinue drinking altogether. If he had consciously attempted to search out the correct premises from which to make his deductions, and if his effort had been attended with success, he would have discovered the unsatisfactory standard of his general functioning, and this would have brought a realization that he must, by some means, make certain that his standard of psychophysical coordination and sensory appreciation was satisfactory before he allowed himself to entertain even mildly egotistical conclusions regarding his ability to fight his bad habits. If such an analysis of the psychophysical factors involved had been made, he must have been led to the conclusion that in the matter of the breaking of habit, the standard of sensory appreciation is the all-important factor. His increasing desire for alcohol probably came very gradually, as also the corresponding decline in his standard of coordination and sensory appreciation. Thus, the gratification experienced in satisfying the already abnormal desire would soon dominate psychophysical processes which otherwise might have been exercised in the field of reasoning and common sense, and he might then have been led to a consideration of the consequences of permitting himself to become a victim of the alcohol habit. In all such experiences there comes a time at last when the person concerned is forced to recognize the harmful effects of such a habit, and then very often makes an effort to fight the desire and to eradicate the habit. But too frequently it happens that the effort is a feeble one, or that it is made along impossible lines. Some well-meaning friend, for instance, may urge the man to use what is called willpower to fight and control his desire. But the desire is a sensory desire, and the processes called willpower have in this case long since been dominated by the debauched sensory appreciation associated with this desire, and therefore his hope of salvation lies in the restoration of his sensory appreciation to that normal condition which we do not find associated with abnormal and unhealthy desire. In man's supreme inheritance, we have referred to that degenerate state of the organism when the human creature will desire a form of sensory satisfaction through actual pain. In the case of alcoholic excesses, each occasion of indulgence is followed by suffering, often intense suffering, but even this does not act as a deterrent. 
We must therefore realize the enormous influence of perverted sensual desire on the human creature and recognize that satisfactory development in the control of his psychophysical processes is impossible without that reliable sensory appreciation which goes hand in hand with normal sensory desires. One point more. Fundamental desires and needs must be satisfied. If there are not, serious results must follow sooner or later, and the fact that the attempt to satisfy desires and needs leads many individuals to indulge in abuse and excess does not affect this conclusion. Abuse and excess are always associated with abnormality, and abnormality is due to abnormal conditions in the psychophysical functioning of the organism, and this applies in the matter of abuse and excess in eating, as well as in drinking and in connection with any other needs and desires. Abuse or excess is an attempt to satisfy a need or desire which, originally normal, has become abnormal, and as long as this abnormal desire or need remains, it is useless to deny a man the means whereby to his excesses and abuses. Our energies should instead be applied to attempts to eradicate the abnormal conditions responsible for the excess and abuse, and so to restore the normal psychophysical functioning of the organism and the reliable sensory appreciation which ensures the maintenance of normality in our desires and needs. End of section 13